Attack of the Final Girls is a podcast about the horror genre, so listener discretion is advised. Please check the show notes for specific content warnings for this episode. And of course, beware of spoilers. Welcome to Attack of the Final Girls. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. And today we are, well, this is episode 28, first and foremost, but numbers are on my mind because we are talking about a film that is celebrating its 100th anniversary this year. Insane. We've had film for 100 years. Yeah, more than 100 years. Over 100 years. That's boggling my mind right now. (laughs) And we've gone from this to... No, I was just going to bring up a stupid movie that came out this year. I don't know. <laughs> the Dead Don't Die. That didn't come out this year, but that's a stupid movie. Did any trauma movies come out this year? <laughs> Probably. Well, so we've gone from... I'm 19... sure there was an Evil Bong installment somewhere in there. Or Ginger Dead Man. Yeah, one oh, of those. Evil Bong plus Ginger Dead Man. That's a thing. Mm-hmm. That is a thing. And that, I think that's where we're at with those now. Yeah. So we went from 1922 to 2022, and now... We have a lot of trauma movies (laughs) and no more of these movies. Yeah, but we do have A24 and um, other such companies making good stuff. Good way to put that in perspective. Yeah, not all is lost here in the year of our Lord, 2022. (laughs) God bless. uh, Yeah. (laughs) But uh, we are talking today about Nosferatu, the original, the OG. The OG. Yeah. First gay vampire. Let's go. <laughs> Let's do it. That's a, that's a hell I'm going to die on. Once again, seen this movie a bunch of times, but never like critically thought about it. Yeah. And sure. then I'm watching about it this time and I'm thinking, damn, Dracula is gay as hell. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> we, I think we said that when we were on the Ghoul Friends podcast talking about the hunger. I was like, man, vampire. Or no, it was when we were talking about Interview with the Vampire oh, on yeah. their podcast. I was like, man, vampires are gay as hell. And this is just, this was like the first, well, at least the first film iteration that just proves that. Yeah. Vampires are gay as hell. Yeah. Directed by a queer person, F.W. Murnau. Yep. Directed by a queer person about uh, basically gay longing. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's, uh, I read a, a quote earlier that was like, there's never been a heterosexual vampire. And I was like. God bless. <laughs> that That is a thousand percent correct. Very first vampire I ever came across, like, in a serious way was an interview with the vampire. I was like, damn, they're gay as hell. Yeah. It's never proven me wrong. Yeah, it's true. Vampires are gay as hell. Underline that. Write it down in your diary. Today, whenever this podcast episode came out, December 5th, 2022, write down in your diary, vampires are gay as hell. Underline that. That is going to be the one constant for the rest of your life it's true <laughs> death taxes vampires are gay as hell. <laughs> that's a t-shirt <laughs> that's a tattoo i'm getting that tattooed on my forehead tomorrow <laughs> you think i just <laughs> and i'm just gonna come in next time with a tattoo this is vampires are gay as hell <laughs> it's like yes i mean that literally yes anyways <laughs> i didn't did we even say what oh yeah we did 
<laughs> you said you said what we're watching. I did say what we're watching. Yeah, yeah. I Nosferatu, just went off. 1922, directed by F. W. Murnau. I was like, hopefully, hopefully people know what we're watching. I didn't just go off on a tangent about gay vampires for no reason. <laughs> Once again, I've seen this movie a bunch of times, but I, I've never really, I've paid close attention. But this time, you know, thinking critically about it. But we have to give props, of course, to the great Max Shrek yeah. playing Graf Orlock. Count Orlock, he is creepy, he's unsettling, he's strange-looking, super iconic. In general, if you've never seen a photo of Max Shrek, like, in real life, he looks like a real ray of sunshine. Yeah, he really does. Great, great <laughs> at parties, um, probably a real, real fun guy. And I'm being completely sarcastic. Um, he looks like a very dour um, and then Gustav von, you probably say it in German, Wangenheim, who plays Hutter, main character, our Jonathan Harker transplant, and Greta Schroeder, who plays Ellen, his wife. That's our main cast of characters, yeah, basically. Yeah. And if you know anything about Dracula, then you probably know what's going on in Nosferatu. Basically, yeah, yeah. It's essentially the same. Well, yeah, and that is part of the reason, it's part of the story of this film. You know, this film is really interesting because it's sort of lifted up and elevated, and rightly so, as this, you know, sacred piece of horror history. But actually, when it was made, it was very low budget. Mm -hmm. So low budget that they could only afford one camera. So they only had one set of negatives. Which is bad. Which that's, is bad. That's not good for... Um, not great. What is that? Uh, longevity. Yeah. It's not good for yeah, longevity. Yeah. Well, and then <laughs> the thing that really hurt them on longevity, the reason why we almost don't have this film, is that it was also so, let's say, low budget and sort of fly by night in a certain regard. And we'll talk more about the production company here in a bit. It was a completely unauthorized adaptation of the novel Dracula by Bram Stoker, who was already deceased at the time, but his widow was not having it. So that's another sort of interesting piece of it is like people go back and forth and every once in a while you'll see a meme pop up like, screw you, Florence Stoker. But honestly, like, you know, Florence Stoker did what she had to do at the time, not saying it was right or wrong. She was looking out for herself and I get it. If we had not had... Florence Stoker launching this copyright fight against Murnau and Prana Films and then subsequently almost causing the complete and total destruction and loss of this film. I don't know that it would have the same storied place in horror history. Maybe it would. I mean, it's certainly of the level of quality, but, you know, if we hadn't lost it, almost lost it and found it, maybe it just would have been kind of lost another way out of neglect as so many films were. I don't know. I mean, I say Florence Stoker, whether you agree with what she did or not, is an important part of the story of this film. Oh, definitely. I mean, I think that you could say that for so many different films, like the fact that they were banned just made them yep. really hot. Yeah. People wanted to watch them. People had to have them. People bootlegged them on VHS, which is the only way that we have them on DVD now. Yeah. Yeah, I think you can say that for so many films and so... Like, the illegal and sometimes immoral and otherwise crappy, you know, actions of some people end up making a film legendary in one way or another. And yeah, like, they did definitely rip off of uh, Bram Stoker's, you know, famous work. And she was just mad because she wasn't getting any royalties off of that. Well, 
also like at the time women didn't have a lot of options totally. in terms of money and making a living and so yeah. get your money girl yeah yeah for sure i mean she was a widow she was you know and being the widow of a famous writer they probably weren't making bank you know right. at the time and she was like hey you can't just use my dead husband's work and then not give me any money of that uh, so rather than pay her the production company just went bankrupt yeah they were just like okay well we're not gonna pay you whoops <laughs> happens a lot in companies even now oh yeah what was that um family with the opioid drugs something with an s can't remember the name exactly, but it was a whole family oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. that owned like that distribution company that distributed the opioids. Oh, the farmer broke guy. Shkreli? Yeah. Maybe? Sure. The guy that bought the Wu-Tang album. Yep. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. They ended up having to pay like billions and billions of dollars in payouts to people for opioid abuse and like neglectful, you know, prescription practices and all that. And uh, they were just like, yeah, we're not going to pay that. So they just bankrupted it, like went bankrupt rather than paying that out. And what was the name of the production company? Prana? Prana, yeah. They did the same thing. They were like, "Mm, we could pay you your money. And they probably were also really broke. So maybe that's part of it. But the other part was that they had to destroy the copy of the film. Yeah. And that was like the terms of the settlement was that Number one, you have to pay all this money, which they weren't going to do. And number two, you can never show this movie ever again. But luckily, they made an international copy, which is the only way that we have it. Yeah, because interestingly enough, the copyright for Dracula did not extend to the United States Mm. through some loophole. um, So Dracula was essentially at the time of Nosferatu's U.S. release, Dracula was essentially public domain oh interesting so the copyright laws didn't apply so they were able to release the film in the u.s and they were then able to have surviving copies of it do you think that's why the uh bella lugosi stoker or (laughs) the bella lugosi dracula was allowed to go through also florence stoker died in 1937 so maybe she had other things to worry about perhaps yeah i think universal paid for the rights for their Dracula. Because, okay. I mean, Universal was already a big, lauded film company. You know, Carl Lamel was, you know... And, and they viewed themselves as an international film company. So mm. I don't think that they were operating under the same sort of indie, you know, B-movie ethos that Piranha was at the time. So I'm pretty sure that they paid for the rights. That would make sense. I just quickly looked up about Florence Stoker... Uh, apparently after Bram Stoker's death, she went back by Florence Balcom, but she didn't even know that they were making the movie until she got a handbill for the debut. (laughs) So she was pissed. So they did the the old like, oh, it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission thing. Yikes, guys. Yep. And like we both had said before, she was struggling. Yeah. So she won the case and then, yeah. She did grant the rights to the stage adaptation to Dracula. Um, Which is where Bela Lugosi got his start. Yeah. And the first iteration of that was actually in in Dublin, in Ireland, which is pretty interesting. And then Horace Liverite got it from her, hired John Balderston, and then it was on Broadway. Although he also did not pay all her entitlements to the show. So she That's just never got her due. Florence, y'all. <laughs> yeah. I mean... 
Such was the way at that time, though. Yeah, it is true. Writers were not really... There, it wasn't a Stephen King situation. It wasn't a Danielle Steele situation where you're making millions and millions and millions of dollars off residuals and movie deals and book deals and TV deals and all that. It wasn't like that. Well, we see that persist even today. I mean, you know, the infamous Writers Guild strike that shut down, you know, all of Hollywood and television production. It's been about a decade ago, I guess. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we even see writers now, you know, writers, people in production who are like, hey, you know, this contract was written before streaming existed or before Mm -hmm. DVD existed. Um, That was a big thing when DVD really came into vogue, especially with TV shows. Mm -hmm. I knew about it a lot because of the music rights, but... You had all these people who had been paid a set fee for something that was going to air on broadcast for a duration of time and then fade into the ether. And then all of a sudden, DVD comes along and these companies, for a time, are making tons and tons and tons of money on nostalgia selling these old TV shows. And people are like, hey, where's my money, please? Yeah. I mean, Disney very recently had a lot of writers come to them and say, well, we read all of these Star Wars mm-hmm. books, and you guys inherited the license to all these books, but we haven't gotten it one cent since you guys inherited this. And Disney says, "Oh, well, that's not us. Like, yeah, all your turn, all your contracts are null and void, except we still have its sole publishing rights to, like, the um, extended universe stuff." Yeah, which that's been a huge thing with Timothy Zahn. So Timothy yeah. Zahn writes the Thrawn series. He wrote the Thrawn series before in the extended universe, but. Uh, which is where Thrawn gained popularity as a character. And then now there is a very popular Thrawn series that Disney published. And now Thrawn is actually going to be part of a TV series, Mm -hmm. which is extremely important and really cool to have a crossover. But Timothy Zahn's like, I'm not getting paid for any of those. Right. You guys could republish these at any time, but I'm not getting residuals anymore but you're still making money off of it. Yeah, I know some of the bigger writers too. Like I know Neil Gaiman was actually very, very involved sort of trying to use his clout and his level of fame and influence on behalf of especially other genre fiction writers Mm -hmm. who had done licensed work and were really getting screwed over and just don't have the power, you know, to be able to really affect any change or get to the right person's ear. I know he was super involved in that for a while. Yeah, and we're not talking about a lot of money for the most part. Like, these are probably, like, little checks, I would say. But that doesn't mean that those people aren't entitled to that money. Exactly. So, yeah. It just goes to show writers never get... (laughs) Yeah. Unless you're, like, you know, in the top 1% of writers Mm -hmm. that are the most among the most popular in the world, you really are going to have to try hard to both advocate for yourself and keep an eye out so that people don't make movies off of your dead husband's work yeah i mean hell with it my partner found one of his films bootlegged on youtube just like two weeks ago did he contact the person who put it up or anything he tried to and he filed a complaint with youtube and they took it down oh that's good youtube's normally pretty good about the the copyright thing yeah so that's fair but yeah like you always got to keep your head on the swivel when it comes to ip (laughs) yeah (laughs) there's so much cool like background information that has to do with this movie And it's another one of those situations where this movie is so old, the trivia that surrounds it has to be, like, 
kind of hard baked into the production of the film or have to do with the actors' real lives. It's not like a movie that was made 20 years ago where you're going to have like loads and loads and loads of cool trivia because people did magazine articles and told their friends and their friends wrote it down on the internet. No. Right. Yeah. Max Schreck didn't have any friends, number one. And number two, he didn't write anything down. There is a really interesting since proven apocryphal story where for a while people were like, oh, Max Schreck is a stage name. Mm-hmm. And he's really, for a while, folks thought he was this actor uh, that Fritz Lang used a lot that played one of the leads in Metropolis. Oh, yeah, yeah. And yeah. Um, that is not the case. Max Schreck is his birth name. And he was an actor in his own right. But there was some interesting, interesting rumors uh, floating around surrounding him for a long time. And of course, we saw those taken to the nth degree in Shadow of a Vampire, Totally. You know, many, many years later, the sort of mythos around Nosferatu and Max Shrek taken to a highly fantastical point of view, uh, which was great. I love that one. Yeah. And Shrek actually, like the suffix Shrek in, in German means fright. Mm. So that was the other part of it is people were like, oh, well, like Max Fright, seriously, Max <laughs> Fright, you're going to name yourself Max Fright. But no, that's like his real name. Yeah. Shrek, Shrek is just unfortunately his real name. Yeah. It would be very easy to think that that's a fake name. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like Elvis Presley. Elvis Presley is really his real name. Yeah. But it could totally have been oh, absolutely. a made up yeah. name. <laughs> like I've never heard anybody else with a name so strange before. But yeah, kind of the history surrounding the making of this film is almost as interesting as the film itself. Because I love Dracula. I've read you know, Dracula a bunch of times. I read it semi-regularly. There's another Dracula kind of parallel series. And damn it, if I can't remember that author's name, but I'll like go through. Is it Anno Dracula? No, it's, um, I'll have to try and remember that author's name. It's a trilogy. They were written in like the late 80s, early 90s, but I'll, like, read the first... I'll read Bram Stoker's Dracula, and then I'll, re- like, read through her three. Nice. Because it's, like, sort of parallel to that story, but, like, more intense. Anyways, I've read it a bunch of times. I feel like I pull something new out of it every time, and I love it a lot, and it's obviously spurred a lot of um, really good vampire literature since then, which is funny because it actually came... Bram Stoker adapted like an erotic short story to get Dracula, which kind of makes me want to pivot into one of the other points I wanted to make about this movie is we already talked about how gay it is, but let me reiterate, this movie is gay as hell. (laughs) It's got gay roots. It's got a gay director. Mm -hmm. And I say gay roots because I read today and I did not know this until today. And it just like, it was like a lightning bolt. Apparently Bram Stoker was, was they, in the article, it said closeted homosexual, but it's apparently a rumor that he was queer. And I'm I'm sitting there thinking about it. I'm like, yeah, duh, he's gay. I mean, <laughs> just think about all of the interactions between Dracula and Jonathan Harker. Like, oh, yeah. You're going to sit there and tell me that it's not even a little bit gay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and Dracula and Renfield. Yeah. It's easy. It's easy to see if you're watching the... Um, uh, Francis Ford Coppola version, oh, yeah. like Gary Oldman and Keanu Reeves, like pretty, like very closely, almost make out. Yeah, 
Um, like Interview with the Vampire is just straight up gay, but like <laughs> Bram Stoker's Dracula and that just the, any interaction between Harker and Dracula, and then in this movie Orlock and Hutter is gay as hell. Yeah, and I was like, dang. <laughs> all those vampire books I've read and all those movies I've watched have all been about gay longing. And I was like, dang, that, <laughs> this is so formative for me. <laughs> like, I feel like all the it's puzzle all pieces here are in the text. <laughs> all the puzzle pieces are coming together. When I write this in my diary, December 5th, 2022, vampires are gay as hell, period, underline, that's it. Close the book. Put a little heart around it. It's that's it. That's <laughs> it's all done. Heart around it and toss that diary into the fire. Never need to write another word. It's true. It's true. <laughs> but yeah, I, I had no idea. Um, I didn't. I didn't know that it was a rumor that Bram Stoker was gay. Um, I obviously didn't know until today that F. W. Murnau um, was gay and actually lived his life as a as an open gay man yeah. in Hollywood, which happened a lot in the thirties, twenties, and thirties. Which is surprising now. Pre-McCarthyism. Yeah. And pre-World War II. Yep. Pre-the yeah. fall of Weimar Berlin, et cetera, et cetera. Cabaret. Watch Cabaret if you've never seen it. <laughs> and here's where we put Cabaret into Yes. <laughs> here's a convenient excuse to talk about Cabaret, which and... we both love. <laughs> and queer people. Yep. Because <laughs> that is... That's the entire I mean, really, that's the whole movie. you can't talk about cabaret without <laughs> talking about queer people. Exactly. But I, I think that that's such an interesting thing, though, is that, like, F.W. Murnau was a, like, closeted, uncloseted gay man in Berlin. But Berlin was a, it was a different, t- like, the tw- early 20s into, like, the Nazi era of Berlin was totally different. Yeah. It was an accepting place. It was full of artistes and, you know, like being gay was socially accepted. And it was just a, a completely different time before Hitler rose to power and, you know, they cracked down on everything, arts and people who were different in Germany. And I think that that bled over here. Oh, yeah. We had a lot of uh, European folks who came here because they were like, wow, you can live to and be gay in Hollywood for right now. Well, a lot of people were forced to come here. True, you know, yeah. so many of the German directors, you kind of had to make a choice. Um, do you stay and make propaganda films for the Nazis or do you get out, you know, and eventually make your way to Hollywood. You know, that's the story of many of the German expressionists and the sort of forefathers of film noir as well. And the unfortunate part is many, many of them got here, got settled, made some really good films, and then got blacklisted when the Red Scare happened. Which is, it's so disappointing that we're finally at the point now in American society where we're starting to get really an outpouring of like queer and black indigenous people of color, you know, make it able to make art and being empowered to make art again, not to say that it's at the level of everybody else, but um, we're getting to that point again, but how long did it take? Yeah. You know, it's been 80 years Yeah, and we're only marginally getting back to that point. And it's just so disappointing that just one generation's worth of, of crappy, you know, terrible, afraid, fear-mongering could crush 80 years worth of, like, worthy cinema, worthy stories to be told. 
we had it in the 20s, we had it in the 30s, and then the 40s after, just, it's not good. Well, I mean, you have to factor in, you know, in addition to McCarthyism and all that, you know, there were so many structural things in American society and and white-centric society writ large that just prevented people from, you know, when you look at the queer people in Hollywood that could be out and thrive as much as you could be in those early days. They were pretty much all white men, you know, so that there, there's that too, you know, it gets more complicated, I think. And I think a lot of them too were closeted, so they would have yeah. beards, you know, yep. Rock Hudson famously. Yeah. I mean, that's just the, the example that comes to mind, but it's just really unfortunate that we had a lot of cinema that never got made and a lot of stories that never got told. Yeah. Or, or maybe not in the way that they deserved mm-hmm. or needed to be told, specifically just because of people who are backwards. Old white men, mostly. Yeah. Um, 1% people. In any case, <laughs> you mentioned German Expressionism. And I know yeah. that you had mentioned earlier that you really love the lighting. Yes. In this. Um one of the other things that I thought is really uh, inf- interesting in terms of the German expressionism of this movie is that it is a, I can't think of the right word for this, unreligious, I guess you could say, rather unreligious, with the exception of maybe those text slides that we see in the movie. It's not really very religious. It's not like a God and Satan thing. You know, he doesn't seem to be affected by crosses. Most of what you see in terms of religiosity is from the villagers who are like crossing themselves um, when they think of Hutter leaving or what they read in the book. Yeah, most German expressionism is not steeped in religious iconography. It's... um much more steeped in psychology, Mm -hmm. actually. Certainly there's morality as part of psychology. Like if you look back at sort of what's considered like the first German Expressionist film or the one that launched German Expressionism, The Student of Prague, which is a great film, by the way, it's so much about morality and good and evil, but it's not really framed in religion and like, Mm -hmm. oh, you're going to heaven, you're going to hell. It's more like, what you ought to be doing and worldly temptation. But it's not like a Christian view of worldly temptation. It's like being a good upstanding person versus giving into the temptations and, you know, being strong of mind versus giving into the flesh, that sort of a thing. Um, And certainly Cabinet of Dr. Caligari goes way down that psychological rabbit hole. This one stays more in the literal realm as literal as we can be when we're talking about a vampire. Mm -hmm. Nosferatu is not, he's not evil in a Satan sense. Mm -hmm. There is a reference to Belial in the little, the little handbook, the little occultist handbook. But even that reference, I think is more, is more mystical occult Mm -hmm. rather than like Christian based. Yeah. Nosferatu is more steeped in the sort of, evils of disease and plague and the world and all of that rather than like the evil of the ethereal or the binary heaven and hell yeah which you see that a lot in like dracula and bram stoker's dracula is very much steeped in what is holy what is unholy 
Dracula being a devil or, you know, an offshoot of Satan. Yep. And not not being able to ascend to heaven if you're one of his, you know, children, I guess you could say. So this, you know, taking the opposite tack and saying, no, Orlok transcends those ideas. He He is not a religious figure. He is not a devil. He is not an angel. He just simply is. Yeah. He's a creature. He's a not human, but not unhuman. You know, I think that that is a very interesting take on Dracula, at least as an ideal, because you see a lot of religious discussion in a lot of vampire lore. Yeah. Um, Anne Rice. Oh, it's all over her stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She very famously, you know, struggles with those religious, uh, do I go to heaven? Do I go to hell? Am I damned? Can I ever redeem myself? You know, those things. Orlok is just like, I want, I just want to suck your blood a lot. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. (laughs) He's not trying to save himself. He's, um, he just seems to be a creature of need, He's also not trying to make other vampires. Right. Because Dracula, of course, the longing for Mina and Lucy is to make them his brides, mm-hmm. you know, and to, to, you know, feast on certain people, but to choose others to be his companions. Orlok doesn't care. Yeah. Orlok is a, is a solitary gentleman. Yeah. And he just wants his dinner. Yeah. Essentially. Yep. Which is almost scarier. It's interesting that vampires have a tendency to go one of two ways. You either have cool, sexy, suave vampires, a la Lost Boys, or 92's Dracula, like Gary Oldman, you know, or you have Peter from What We Do in the Shadows, you have, (laughs) which is literally, like, Peter is a direct copy of Count Orlock. Yeah. Peter is Count Orlok. Yeah, basically. If Orlok survived, he would be Peter. And I think that that's the point. Oh, yeah. But you have the Anne Rice vampires where we see, like, what the awesome parts of immortality would be. It would be, you know, sex and and money and finding as... Being with as many people as you want. Mm -hmm. Being able to read every single book in the world and never having to worry about it. Um, traveling the world, seeing all there is to see, talking to other vampires who have much more knowledge than you. And then you have Orlok, which is the stark contrast of all of the, the parts that being immortal, the, all of the parts of being immortal that would be terrible. Yeah. Like boredom and longing and loneliness and being abandoned and, and never having a compatriot and pestilence and plague and you know inflicting yourself on wherever it is that you're going all of these things are just the absolute worst and it's interesting that we get this rather singular depiction of an unsexy unfulfilled not fun vampire because there are so many that go the other route. Oh, yeah. Because it's easy. It's like, well, why wouldn't you want to be immortal if you could have X, Y, and Z? But then you see Count Orlock and you're like, no. Yeah. If that's a possibility, then hell no. I will not be doing that. Yeah. So I think it's easier a little bit to go the route of sexy vampire, alluring mm-hmm. vampire, able to travel the world and fulfill all of your earthly wants and needs vampire than it is to both explore that like ugly 
depressed, lonely vampire who also can't make himself any friends and is not religious. Right. That's a much tougher road to go down. So I definitely have to give F.W. Marnell props for pursuing that route of, like, unsexy, terrifying, scary, pestilent vampire. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I think we see little hints of it throughout the film. You know, everybody remembers, of course, all of the iconic scenes, you know, him on the boat when he sits straight up, you know, the the shadow in the stairs with the claws. But one of the most striking images in this film is when he's looking out the window mm-hmm. and he's just like all by himself. Yeah. Like it's kind of sad. And likewise, when Hutter first comes to his castle, it's like a little weird if you if you really like read into that. Yeah, he's like, hello, my dinner's here. But it's also like he could have easily just fed on him, mm-hmm. you know, but he's like very keen to kind of have a conversation and look at photos and stuff. Yeah, and, like treat with him, yeah, you know? Yeah, Because he's frail. He's bored. Yeah. He's a tragic figure. He says, he tells Hutter, all of my servants are asleep. He doesn't have any servants. Right, right. He does, we see him doing everything himself. He packs his own coffins to go onto the Demeter. He does everything himself, so. Yeah. He's got Nock, but Nock is... Nock is like your Renfield equivalent in this mm-hmm. film, you know, with the same kind of delirium uh, brought on by the vampire. But we actually never see them in the same room together. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, we we see Dracula and Renfield interact in person many times. With Nock, it's like you're almost wondering, have they ever even met in person? Or is this strictly like a psychic connection or some sort of connection that was forged with the um, occult symbols and sacred geometry, like something to bespell him from afar so he would do Orlok's bidding. Yeah, and uh, Nock is not much company. <laughs> no, he's really not. And Renfield is the same way. I mean, Renfield is not is not a suitable companion. He's he's uh, Dracula's man on the outside, basically. Yep. Yeah. He does his bidding, but he is not a... He's not really a companion. He's a loyal, faithful servant. Right. But that's about as far as a relationship will go. Although Renfield and Nock desperately wanted to be more, yes. um, it can never be. Yeah. Because Dracula doesn't want a servant, you know? Yeah. I mean, I mean, he does want a servant, but he doesn't want a servant as a companion. Right. Right. He wants a lady. Or, or Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> or both. Yeah. Or both. Yeah, I definitely think Dracula is at the least bisexual. Oh, yeah. Or pansexual. Because... If you could live forever, why why wouldn't you you be? (laughs) Right? (laughs) I feel like it'd be impossible to be heterosexual if you live forever. Yeah. Because, like, gender is a construct, and you can certainly identify as one gender for all of your life, but, like, if I were a vampire, I'd be like, no, I'm going to play with gender a lot more. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, this lifetime. all of time. Exactly. It's like, why not? Yeah. Why not be the David Bowie of vampires? Oh, yeah. Be another David Bowie vampires because the hunger, but yes, <laughs> and not to say that you know people's gender identity isn't fixed because some people do have a fixed gender identity. But me myself being more gender fluid, I feel like I would definitely be playing with gender all the time. Oh yeah, yeah. I'd be like this century. I want to. I want to present femme, and I'm gonna go to masquerade balls. Like I don't even know if that's gonna happen again, but I'm gonna go to masquerade balls, and I'm gonna grow my hair long. And then the following century, I'd be like, "No, nah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna present mask this century." Yeah, 
who cares? Well, especially by virtue of, you know, as a vampire, you have to relocate or reinvent yourself periodically yeah. so people don't notice that you're aging. So, like, why not, you know, okay, sweet. I'm going to be, you know, a dandy now. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Oh, now I'm going to be a lady of the court or what, you know, whatever. Yeah. Like, Just pick whatever I feel like. Yeah. Every 40 years, just like, all right, time to pull up mistakes and yeah. get to move in and, and now I can be whatever I want to be. So if you're ever concerned about, you know, gender expression or whatever, just think about vampires and how they don't have to worry about it. What would vampires do? Yeah. What would vampires do? Be gay as hell. <laughs> That's what vampires would do. <laughs> so that, that should just be the motto by which you live your life. Yeah. What You have a question? Be gay as hell. That's yeah, the answer. That's a good answer, I think. <laughs> Um, so uh, something I did want to say is like, if you're not used to watching silent films or maybe you, you don't watch them very much or, uh, you've never watched one before because that's totally a possibility. Silent films have to be overacted so that you get a sense of what's happening. It's on purpose. It's, you know, an early era of film. So, so give it a little bit of leeway there. And although there are title cards that kind of give us the the story as we go along or g- give us additional information in this particular case, you're really having to rely on these actors and, like, the grand gestures that they're making and the big, sad, or big, happy faces that they're making. And it does... It, it's inadvertently kind of causes it to be a little bit comedic, a little bit funny. Sure, yeah. You can definitely ad-lib the shit out of it. That's what I was doing the entire time. (laughs) We were both doing that a little bit. It's easy to not take it as seriously, the subject matter. I think my recommendation, if you have not engaged with a lot of silent cinema, is the same thing that I recommend for people who are seeing opera or ballet for the first time, which is... Read the plot ahead of time. Yes. So you understand what you're seeing, especially if it's a story you're unfamiliar with. You know, maybe Nosferatu, you can get through it pretty easily because you've seen a bunch of different versions of Dracula and you've read the novel, etc. But if you're really going to dive in, like if you're going to watch Cabinet of Dr. Caligari for the first time, I would read about it first Mm -hmm. before I watch it so I could go in and really have an appreciation for what's happening. You know, it's the same way if you're going to go see an opera in Italian and you don't speak Italian, even though you have the Sir cards there, like yeah. read what the story's about first and you'll be able to follow along so much easier. Definitely. Number one, this being a German film initially and us kind of getting the translation of it, it helps. And I, I do think that, you know, a lot of silent films are transcend language because Absolutely. we see a lot of those same things regardless of whatever language they're in. But also understanding a little bit about the time, the culture, what we're seeing, what the actors are having to deal with in their time. All those things, I think, totally lend to it. Having seen this movie a bunch of times, I can laugh at it now because I like I always think that Hutter is such a bumbling idiot. Like he's always (laughs) just grinning and smiling and like stretching and just oblivious to the world around him while everybody else around him is serious, like his wife and Orlock and all that. If you've never seen it before, maybe read ahead and like... Just give yourself an idea of what you're going into. I will say for this one, even if you are very familiar with the Dracula story, it is helpful to read a little bit about the background for this because it is a very Germanized version Mm -hmm. of the Dracula story. And knowing a little bit about 
what was happening in Germany at the time this was being made and the sort of Germany that is being portrayed on the screen, it will only serve to enhance what you're watching. Definitely. Because this is really the story of a German town. Yes. You learn that pretty early on in one of the title cards that this is the story of this person's German town. It's called Visborg. Not a real place. It's based on a real place, but it's not a real place. It's not a real city. It definitely can help you. And this story is different. I mean, it, yeah. it is drawing heavily on the characters and the uh, the ultimate monster. You know, it's drawing really heavily on that. But it has a different ending. It has a very different ending. So definitely read ahead on that one. It's also helpful to understand the screen tinting. It mm-hmm. seems really obvious, but I think we mistakenly sometimes think that all screen tinting has to do with um, the age of a negative. And certainly that can be corrected now when they're doing new remastered versions of films. But the tinting in Nosferatu is actually very important. And tinting in early cinema was a very popular thing. I know we're so used to all early cinema being black and white. But they were doing negative tinting before Technicolor ever came out. And it does serve a purpose in the story. It helps you delineate when it was day versus night. And so, again, like knowing that will make you have a better viewing experience than just being like, oh, uh, the negative went pink here, you know, because it's aging out, which is a real thing that does happen. But that's actually not what's happening in this film. Yeah, because we have to remember they only have one camera and they don't have floodlights or like halogen that they can use at nighttime. So everything is actually filmed during the day. Yep. And then they just tint it blue for nighttime. So, you know, give it some grace here. We're talking about a movie that's literally 100 years old. So it's a little funky. It's a little quirky. Um, It's kind of funny to see how people are are like overacting (laughs) in a silent film. But all in all, I mean, honestly, like for what it is, for the time period, it's it for how influential it is. It's really, it's truly a fabulous film. Absolutely. And really, you know, 1922, people were still very much learning, like, they were still making up cinema at that point. Oh, you yeah. Know, they, horror as a film genre was just being invented. This is not, I wouldn't, it's hard to pinpoint what the first horror film is. I would put this as one of the first, probably mm-hmm. not the first. But a lot of things that would go on to influence not just horror, but noir and crime drama and science fiction were being established right here by people who were just experimenting and trying to tell a story. So yeah. having a little grace there, too, it it gets more fun that way, I think, to realize, like, oh, they were, like, inventing this. Yeah, like... They had little to no idea what they were doing. Yeah. And this is feature length, too. It's an hour and a half. It's literally exactly one hour and 30 minutes long. And, like, it only took three months to film. But imagine, you know, having an entire crew of people and just being like, we have no idea what we're doing. We have no idea what this is going to look like at the end. We don't have any capability of knowing whether or not we have a movie until after we develop these negatives. Which is a whole process. Yeah. So an interesting thing about the process there, F.W. Murnau very, very meticulously storyboarded everything. He sketched out scenes so that he could try to create with the camera the vision that he wanted and that the screenwriter had created, as well as the producer who really uh, sort of created the look of Count Orlock. He was a very specific storyboarder and... He also had the actors act to a metronome so that they could get the pacing of the action right so that the pace of the film was consistent for the acting parts. We see some 
speeding and some slowing during the action scenes to try mm-hmm. to create rudimentary effects and time shifts. But to keep the correct pace of the acting, he employed a metronome. And That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. One of the big tenets of German expressionism is that it should be almost like rhythmic poetry. Mm-hmm. And so he used that to try to help create that. That's awesome. That makes sense, too. It does keep the the story moving quite a bit because I think being a silent film, it'd be easy to get stuck. Absolutely. Which is weird, but if you've... <laughs> we say it's a silent film, but there is an opera that goes along with yeah. this, you yeah. know, or like a symphony that goes along with this. And it's cool. Like, we, we get all of the beats. We know what the pacing is like. We know how we should be feeling or yep. what should we should be expecting from the music itself. But it would be very easy to get stuck if you didn't have any sort of sound cues. And people pick up on that. Like, yeah. when, when things move too for, too slowly or they're we're hanging on a shot for too long, people pick up on that very easily. And I think even more so without dialogue. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And we should note in terms of the score, depending on the print you're watching, there are different scores. There is actually a scoreless version uh, that is available, Creative Commons. Um, It's not the best print of the film, but it is like if you just want to watch it without the score for free and check it out. The version that we watched is the Kino remastered print, which to my mind is the best print. Anytime Kino remasters something, like especially early, early cinema, it's going to be like the best quality you can get. And they're really good about updating their prints if it's a film where there are chunks lost and more recovered i've bought countless versions of metropolis from them (laughs) i've gotten so much money from you for fritz lang films because they've recovered different chunks of uh, metropolis specifically but the print that we watched on the dvd actually has two different scoring options Mm -hmm. so that can be kind of fun to watch it and have a different experience with two different scores but either way it will enhance what you're viewing to have the score sort of setting that pace or i would say reinforcing the pace that the director set I haven't watched this one, but I did see that there's a version of this that was made in the 90s with the typo negative soundtrack. Yeah, I haven't watched that either. Which I am semi-curious about, but yeah. I also am worried that it might ruin it. Yeah. Like, I don't know if typo negative is the band I would pick to. Okay, here's a question. <laughs> if you had to pick a band, the current, Ooh, past band. Would score this? Yeah, to do a new uh, soundtrack for this. Oh, gosh. Okay, I'm going to say one that feels like maybe cheating, and then I'm going to say my actual answer. Um, <laughs> the one that I feel like is maybe cheating is Midnight Syndicate, because they do so much score work, and right. they, are, they operate so deftly within the horror genre, and I feel like they could do something that would feel both modern and period appropriate, because mm-hmm. it's kind of what they do. My actual answer... This also feels like maybe a little bit of a gimme. God, see, you ask me this, and I'm going to say like eight different people because I love scores so much. <laughs> All right, I'm going to say I'm going to say a couple more. Okay. Trent Reznor, because he just did the score for Bones and All. Oh, hell yes. And it was an excellent, excellent score, and it was a very unexpected score from him. Mm-hmm. Like, you say Trent Reznor scoring a horror film, and I think we all have in our mind what that should be. And- Lost Highway. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but the score for Bones and All was actually very unexpected and in a really lovely way. So I would like to see what Trent Reznor could do with this. 
I would also say somebody like, if we're going more of a traditional score, I would love to see what um, Hildor Gunator could do. Um, she won an Oscar fairly recently, um, and she was a frequent collaborator of Johan Johansson, mm-hmm. who I would pick were he still on this mortal plane. Right. But a sort of maybe not so out there pick. I'd love to see what Dead Can Dance would do with this yeah dead can dance i was thinking them she wants revenge yeah like if, yeah. if i wanted something more modern bauhaus would have knocked it oh, out of the yeah, park totally because they're they're more like ambient you know yeah yeah anyways ambient synth pop yeah yeah because like typo negative is is funny i think and cool like all problematic crap with typo negative aside but I don't see them making me more into the... Like, I don't know that their soundtrack could enhance the movie for me. I would wonder if their soundtrack would make it more like a music video than yeah. a film. Yeah, and exactly. I don't know. That's not the experience I would want with this film. It might be the experience some people want, but for an hour and a half, yeah. that might be too much. It would just be Mandy. <laughs> shots fired sorry yeah well we did a whole episode that was shots fired, so. <laughs> yeah yeah i also think that some of the like nordic bands uh, that yeah. are happening right totally. now could do something cool but I, I really think that like you're onto something with trent reznor and atticus ross like they could probably really knock it out of the park i think so to keep the movie interesting and also like because uh, the music really serves to tell us where we're going in the story. Right. Because some of the stuff that we see is a surprise. So I think that they could really, like, amp up the the emotion that you're getting in the movie and, like, feeling where you're supposed to be going and knowing what's supposed to happen next or not knowing what's supposed to happen next. I think that they could do a really good job. Definitely. Another question that I had. So at the end, Ellen reads in the book that... The only thing that can stop the evil vampire, the evil Count Orlock, is for a good-hearted woman to distract him away from <laughs> away away from uh, Hutter, and you know that is the only way that he's going to be defeated. Do you think that Ellen knew that she was signing herself up to die? That's a really good question. Because okay, to be fair, I did read a lot of scholarly work yes, on this. Yes. So having seen this movie, you know, multiple times, I'm thinking, okay, well, I'm going to try and read a couple articles about it. I don't do that all the time because most of the time I haven't seen the movie that many times mm-hmm. or like there is a lack of scholarly writing about it, but there's sure, not yeah. with this. So I was trying to read, I was trying my best to read so many articles of this and I was reading some of it out loud to Juliet and I'm just like, this is... And I'm I'm not saying that all of it's like this because there's a lot of stuff out there that's that's beautifully written, poignant, it makes sense, mm-hmm. it makes you think harder about the movie. But a lot of it was just like I'm trying to crank out, you know, three thousand words for my film history prof, and and he's breathing down my neck, and I just drank six Red Bulls, and I'm gonna write a <laughs> lot of garbage. And it was very try hard. I think it was very like earnest, but not a lot of. Uh, substance. Yeah. But one of the things I read is that they kept saying that Ellen sacrificed herself. Sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. There was an entire paper written about Ellen's sacrifice to stop Count Orlock and how that's different than other Dracula iterations. Mm -hmm. And 
to my mind, I'm watching this at the end and I'm thinking, Ellen didn't sacrifice herself. She was just trying to just, she thought, okay, I'm going to distract Count Orlock in the hopes that he would die. I don't think that she was signing herself up to die, though. I didn't know what you think. Yeah, I kind of didn't see that either. I mean, I feel like that's one of those things. And, you know, you can do this. This is the whole, like, film school conundrum to my (laughs) mind. It it was one of the most frustrating things about being in film school is that anything can mean anything. Mm -hmm. It's simultaneously, like, the most fun thing and the most, like, annoying thing ever that, like, anything can mean anything to anyone. And really, it's all valid, depending on, like, your background, where you're coming from, your your interpretation. Like, your interpretation is valid because it's your interpretation. But also, like, oh, my God, like, how are you ever supposed to, like, <laughs> decide on anything? Right. So I can see how people would and would want to interpret that as a sacrifice on Ellen's part. But I tend to agree with you. I think she just thought, oh, I'm going to distract him. I think she thought she was perhaps going to step up and be a hero, Mm -hmm. but not a martyr. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely didn't see it as Ellen, like, consciously co-signing her own death. Yeah. I thought she was just trying to get her husband back because her husband was obsessed with Orlok after coming home. I think she was trying to get him back. I think she was trying to keep him safe. But ever since... Hutter found out that he had this possibility of a job. He became completely obsessed with it. Yep. He left her. He basically shuttled her off to her friends and was just like, all right, see you later. And I I made fun of that at the beginning of this movie. He's just like (laughs) really stoked to be gone. And she's just like, well, I guess I'm just going to put her around and work on my embroidery. And that's it. Well, yeah, because that's the thing is she doesn't. If we look at Ellen's motivation is it to stop Count Orlock to, like, save humanity or the city? Or is it to stop Count Orlock so she can have her husband back? Yeah, exactly. And I think that, you know, you don't get to have your husband back if you're dead. Right. So I don't I don't think it's a sacrifice. I think it was like, I'm going to do I'm going to do a brave thing mm-hmm. because I want my husband back. Exactly. I agree with you. I think she was thinking singularly. Yeah. Because there isn't a, like, Lucy character. Right. You know, like, there's no Lucy character. There's nobody else that's really plagued with the... I mean, people are getting the plague, but that's a bit separate. Yeah. Um. So it's not really personal aside from her husband. And I think she just assumed that she could just stop Orlock herself simply by distracting him. But once again, same with Hutter earlier in the movie, they just kind of like freeze like deer in the headlights and just like slowly slink away because Hutter or because Orlock is so terrifying. And unfortunately, Ellen meets her her doom because of this. So it's sad. But also, I think that she definitely was not on board with her own death. Yeah, I don't think she was planning on going out in a blaze of glory or anything. Right. Like... As much as we would we would want to say, like, sure, she sacrificed herself because it's a noble cause and blah, blah, blah. Don't think so. Yeah. I don't think that's the case. I don't think so. I mean, honestly, even if you know nothing else about this movie, if you've never seen it, never heard of it, Count Orlock is one of the most easily reproduced and, like, easily identifiable creatures, and I think, in all of cinema. Definitely. You have very literal, as I mentioned before, you have Peter from What We Do in the Shadows, like, very literal 
representation of him. But Guillermo del Toro has used, the, you know, in The Pale Man and um, Pan's Labyrinth is basically a direct knockoff of this. Um, cartoons and and any vampire, like, the, and not just vampire movies, like it extends to, uh, like, I also think of um, Buffy yep. of, of the yes. episode with the gentleman. Yep. By far one of the scariest Buffy episodes mm-hmm. of the entire series and very deliberately close to that that Nosferatu mm-hmm. depiction, Salem's Lot by uh, yes. Stephen King. The the made-for-TV version is absolutely, you know, based off of a Nosferatu. So, I mean, we, we literally call that type of vampire a Nosferatu now. Yeah. So yeah. it's uh, very iconic. Yeah. Uh, Count Orlock even makes an appearance, actually a frequent appearance, in SpongeBob SquarePants. Really? Yes. I did not know that. Yes. He's kind of a sight gag in a couple of episodes. One of which is this episode where they're trying to figure out, like, who's doing spooky things. And at the end, it's, like, revealed that he's just, like, turning the lights off and on. <laughs> he's just, like, flicking the light switch to be obnoxious. Wow. Yeah. That's funny that uh, it permeates the, the culture enough that we even see it in, like, a children's cartoon. Oh, yeah. That's hilarious. Oh, man. What are we doing next time? Christmas time! Our next episode... I think I don't even have to say the name of the movie because I can just say next time it will be garbage day. <laughs> garbage day. <laughs> but it's like the most iconic line of the entire movie. It's true. We're going to be watching Silent Night, Deadly Night 2. Don't bother watching the first one. You don't need to. <laughs> you, you'll get everything you need in the second one and then some. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we love a good Christmas movie. Yep. A good Christmas horror movie is even better. So we did Black Christmas last year. Now it's time to throw it back to one of the OG yeah. Christmas horror movies. I'm excited. I, I just told Juliet, I recently watched the third and fourth one, which, I mean, if you want to, you know. I, I feel like that's one of those franchises where they just, like, took indie films and were like, here, we're going to make it part of this franchise now. Yeah, the third one is about a blind girl who is able to connect telepathically to people who are, like, in that are brain dead because well i don't want to spoil it i guess but (laughs) you know this movie that's like 30 years old spoiler alert for silent night deadly night (laughs) three yeah um but she's like able to telepathically connect and and you know based off of some events that happen she's able to connect to somebody who's bad and things happen and a bunch of the people who are in that movie also ended up in twin peaks which is really oh, that's weird. interesting. Like Leo, who plays um, like the terrible husband truck driver guy yeah. in Twin Peaks, he's in it. The guy who plays Audrey Horn's dad, I forget what his first name is, but Mr. Horn. Did um, David Lynch secretly make Silent Night, Deadly Night right? 3? Right? <laughs> I was thinking that too. I was like, did David Lynch just come on the set and was like, you, 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 yeah. come with me. We're going to film Twin Peaks. It was really weird. <laughs> But anyways, that has nothing to do with Silent Night, Deadly Night 2, <laughs> which at least, at the very least, Silent Night, Deadly Night 2 is a, a movie within the franchise that still abides by the rules of the, yes, the franchise. it does. The third and fourth barely have anything to do with it. So. Yeah. So that'll be next time, uh, just in time for the holidays. And if you haven't already, check us out on Patreon. We've got bonus content coming your way. That's patreon.com slash attack of the final girls. And we are on all of your socials. Instagram, TikTok, Mastodon, maybe Hive too. I don't know if Hive is still a thing by the time this episode comes out. And if Twitter is still alive and kicking, which as of right now it is, we'll be there too. 
Thanks for listening to Attack of the Final Girls. Find us online at attackofthefinalgirls.com. We are Attack of the Final Girls on Instagram and TikTok and Final Girls Pod on Twitter. Our theme music is by House Ghost and is available on Rad Girlfriend Records. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode and rate and review on Apple Podcasts so more people can find the show. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. Until next time, stay scary. Yeah.